Morning. Morning. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open up to Paul's letter to the churches of Galatia, otherwise known as Galatians with a G. And if you're joining us here in person and if you're joining us on the live stream, we are glad this morning that you have come to share in the fellowship and goodness of God. Amen. Today we're going to continue our study going verse by verse through Galatians. So today we're going to double our fun and we're going to look at verses 4 and 5, but we will read verses 3, 4, and 5 for its continuing context. This is God's word. May all his people hear it and receive it by faith. Grace to you. And peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks. We give you thanks that you have invited us into this moment where we can sing of your praise and glory. We can offer to you our prayers of request for ourselves and for our country, for our world. Father, thank you that you delight to condescend, to bow down low that we might know you. We thank you for your word. And the way that it speaks to us today, we thank you that you have the words of life. So come, come and make us alive. Come and stir faith in us. Come and refresh us in the goodness of your gospel news that we might once again remember how gloriously beautiful you are. Come and show us truth, but also show us your beauty. Come and give us wisdom, but also unleash your power for us and in us and by your wisdom and ways through us. Come and be honored, Jesus. We herald your name this morning, the only name given among men by which we must be saved. And all God's people agree. You might not know this, but it's graduation season. Uh, One of the things that I enjoy about this time of the year is the sense of pride and accomplishment that everyone has, whether it's in themselves or in their kindergartner, who, by the way, is not graduating. They are promoting. So I stand pretty strong on that. Um, But also... I love that we have a small area of our civil life, of our family life, that is focused around the celebration of accomplishment, the consistency of work required, the consistency of attendance and effort and all those things. It's graduation season. Be cheerful. Enter into the joy that other people have. And also, remember 
that all of those works, all of those achievements do not move the needle in the eyes of a holy God for salvation. That's not to say that God doesn't take pleasure in our good. Of course he does. He commands us to do good and then enables us to do good. Pretty sure he's in the good business. But also, do not let that celebration of achievement bleed into our understanding of our standing before a holy God. Remembering to celebrate the graduations and seasons of life, yes, but also the letter to the churches in Galatia has one immovable center, one undeniable truth being pressed upon all those who would forsake it, or God forbid, literally, teach against it. The gospel is not about what you do for God. It is not. It is about what God in Christ has done for us. So we remember in this season, as in all others, I hope, to come back to the grace and mercy of God that is counter-mercy, counter-grace. It is counter to all that you deserve on your own. But it is glorious grace. It is true and everlasting freedom. So when we begin to think about the gospel, and in the course of our study in this letter, we will be saying the phrase, the gospel, a lot. Some because Paul says it here a bunch. But also because we must be strong on the main point and gentle in its working out in the lives of the people around us. We're hard about the significance of Christ's accomplishment, but we are tender with those who are weak or struggling with it, struggling with their view of God, struggling with their understanding of what God in Christ has accomplished for us. So, share each other's joy and grow in the Lord's patience as we embrace and then embody this work of God in our midst. So, Paul's been coming along, and if you really want to know what the whole letter's about, read these first five verses. Everything that follows comes right out of this introduction. (laughs) And we will see that the pleasantries will soon be finished and the fire will be set and spread. But make no mistake, Paul is drawing boundaries first in who he is as his apostleship has been under attack and second that the gospel has always been about what God will do, has done, is bringing about. And so we see him presenting this truth 
in the expectation and in the longing that they would once again reaffirm the beliefs they had been holding. We've seen him touch on the doctrine of the resurrection. We've seen him talk about the brotherhood and fellowship of the saints who agree that this is what good news is and that there is no other good news, at least of salvation. And so then we see, last week we explored these two prime pillars that Paul desires for all the churches, for all the brothers and sisters, men and women and children of all ages, that they would understand and grow in grace, that they would understand and grow in the peace that only Jesus can give that comes from his Father. And that's where we left off. We left off reading verse 3, and today we begin picking it up again in verse 4. But let's hear it once again in context. Grace to you, Paul desires, and peace which comes from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the labeling of Christ set with the Father, we've seen this is an expression of faith in the deity of Christ. Again, the early church had no problem with that doctrine. They taught it emphatically, so much so that in a few generations, the deity of Christ was no longer under assault, and it was the true humanity of Christ that was debated and and maligned. We hold both secure in the one person, two full natures, human and divine. But it also, as the Apostle Paul is teaching here, the introduction of the Lord Jesus Christ here serves as the subject of the word who in the description that comes in verse 4. In other words... When Paul writes, who gave himself for our sins, he is not speaking of the Father anymore. He has transitioned into, let me pause for a second. Sometimes our study of the Trinity can be complicated. Some of that is because we're finite and he's not, and that translation doesn't always work, okay? But theologians, long before me, have established two different facets or ways to look at our understanding of the Trinity based on what Scripture says. And so we have these two models that we sort of flow in and out of, and I think sometimes we don't bring you with us in those models. So here they are. We talk about the ontological Trinity. The ontological trinity is the one being of God, the one character of God, the one nature of God. Ontology, as a discipline, is the study of being, the study of what makes you or something else a being. For example, we have all kinds of names for humanity, don't we? Mankind, human, but The long form of human has a word that follows it. Human being. So when we're talking about human beings, we're talking about a being that has 
attributes and characteristics that we can understand. If you want to understand Romans 6 and 7, you better understand that Paul sees the human as ontologically comprised of body and soul. So he'll talk about your body and he'll talk about your soul. And as you see them, he's shifting freely kind of in and out of this, but sometimes we don't go along for the journey. Are you with me? So the oneness of God, Deuteronomy 6, 4, and what follows, that's an ontological presentation of who God is. But the other form is what we call the economic trinity. The economic model of the triune God is to understand them not in their being, but in their roles. What is the role or action of the Father? What is the role, the unique purpose of the Son or the Holy Spirit? There's no departure of being. Father, Son, and Spirit are one. And the Father was not crucified. Right? The Holy Spirit is the one who indwells all believers, not the Father. You with me? So we look and they are one, and Scripture affirms this, it shouts this, it sings its glories, and God is free to talk in the language of multi-person without compromising the oneness. Paul is a monotheist, right? Like all the Jews before him, like all those who have known God, one God, three persons. If you go all the way back into Genesis 1, you can see God comfortably moving back and forth between plurals and singulars without changing the subject of himself. So when we see Paul here, talk about the, the divine relationship that the Father and the Son have and then move freely in to the work accomplished by the Son, he's just shifting from an ontological understanding to an economic one. And if that doesn't make sense, go home today, rewind this, listen a few more times, and it still might not make sense. And that's okay. What we need to affirm is that as the Father is one with the Son, so too is the work of the Son going to be given to all of whom he is in relationship, united to him. Kids get this idea. When they see their siblings get a gift, they immediately recognize that that is the gift that belongs to their brother, and it is now ours. <laughs> Kids actually get this sometimes selfishly, or most of the time, maybe. But I think sometimes adults lose this. That whatever is Jesus is, the gospel says it's mine. It's ours. It was secured by him for us. And our union with him is the mechanism by understanding what is his becomes ours by faith in him, the object of our faith. So when we read here in 4a, 
this phrase, who gave himself for our sins, he is speaking of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus the Messiah. Jesus is the one who gave himself. And the language here is critical. Because here, Paul is speaking specifically about one action, one moment of Christ's giving. Here he is obviously speaking of the cross. When Jesus, on the cross, surrendered his body, his very self, as a substitute of ours, receiving the penalties that we deserve. When Paul introduces this, he does so not to present the whole thing, but to highlight this essential difference, the differing point between the gospel and the false gospel, that the liars, the false teachers, the, the cross's powerful deniers are propagating. So when we see that he is here referring specifically to the cross, it is not to say that his righteous life wasn't necessary. If you listen to me for any amount of time, I hammer the righteous life of Christ as the sole source of blessing for God's people. That's not the particular thing that Paul is highlighting here. Listen to one far greater than I. Listen to Machen here. He says, Certainly the incarnation and life of Christ on earth were necessary for the saving work of Christ. Without them, the redemption which he accomplished on Calvary would have been impossible. But here... He's meditating on this particular verse. It is unquestionably the death that Jesus has in mind, or excuse me, that Paul has in his mind. In other words, were his blood not righteous, it could not economically be exchanged for us. Were his blood not righteous, it could not clean the stain of sin in our inner or outer being. In other words, when we see here this casual seeming phrase, who gave himself for our sins, we must take a breath and remember. Remember the praiseworthy truth that Jesus suffered the agonies of the cross for the destruction of our sin. He didn't do it to model sacrificial love. Certainly that's there, but it's so much greater than that. Jesus died for the destruction, or if you take commentaries back far enough, you get this great phrase, Jesus died for the counteraction of our sin. Isn't that awesome? Our sin is acting upon us and us and our sin in the world. 
And that action needs, according to the laws of physics at least, a counteraction of equal or greater force. You don't have to be a modern-day scientist to see the impact of that battle of force. Jesus died for the destruction and counteraction of our sin. This is exactly what Paul is saying here in verse 4, that he gave himself for our sins so that our sins would grow. For our sins is a weird phrase, no? He didn't do it that the sins would get better. He did it for our sins that they would be counteracted upon. You get a common cold, you get the sniffles, your, your wife, your husband, your parent, they hand you a Robitussin or a NyQuil, and they're hoping that that will help your cold. Don't we say that? How's your cold? My cold is getting better. Wait, what? <laughs> Aren't we on the opposite team? Paul here is using this language in the same way that we would understand that this is for not the benefit of sin, but for the destruction of sin, which brings the benefit to the person whose ailing sin we want destroyed, not blossomed. The person to blossom, the sin removed and destroyed never to return. So when Paul has in mind here this giving of Jesus, it has a purpose. The purpose is found in the next clause, to deliver. To deliver. In other words, the gospel is the message of liberation. This is why it flourishes in times of oppression, because people get squeezed to the point where they want a real liberation. They want a real deliverance. Their comforts have been removed. All my parents know what it means when they drag all the toys and books out of their kid's room. We are praying that boredom will bring repentance, because all their substituted Comforts are removed. Don't get me wrong. I love where we live. I love the country that allows us to meet freely, own this place. But I want the kingdom's expansion more than I want my own comfort in that way. It doesn't guarantee that where all oppression comes, all Christianity grows. That would make it science and not an act of God. It would be a human endeavor and not his. But we need to be clear that the incarnation, the life, the death, the resurrection, ascension, all of these things are offered on our behalf for our liberation. That we would no longer be mastered by the tyranny of self. How many times do the people around you talk about getting to know themselves? 
I'm like, yeah, I only want to do that if it comes with removal. I don't want to know me better. I want to know Christ better. I don't want to be more like myself necessarily. I want to be more like Christ. So make no mistake, Christ has come to deliver us. That's why Moses is a a type of the one to come. This is why the book of Exodus should be so precious to us. Because what unfolds in the physical world is even more true and more important in the battles of the invisible world. But Jesus Christ suffered and died to deliver us from the present evil age. And here, here Paul is walking us into a well-established and easily nodded at doctrine in their day. It's one that we need to fill out a little bit more often. When we read that he died to deliver us or was given to deliver us from the present evil age, we have three words to inspect here. Present, evil, and age. So let's start with the last one. The last one is a clear representation of the doctrine of two ages. The doctrine of two ages. And the idea here that one of them is present evil tells us that it should be contrasted against a future age. That there is an age to come. We sang that doctrine but moments ago, did we not? That Christ has come and that there's a day. You'll hear me say this phrase when I'm talking about that day. There will soon be a day. Have you heard me say that? A day is soon to come. That's the promise of the return of Christ. So there's a contrasting here that Paul is making. That we are being delivered, not just from our sins and sorrows, but from the present evil age. Which means there's a future age to come that we hope in and long for. In other words, this word present means now. Doesn't mean Christmas. It means now. The present age, what is that? What is this present age? Is it last week to tomorrow? What are we talking about? Is it the apostolic age? Like, we're really good as Christians in slicing and dicing the Bible up into all these different ages. But they're all subcategories. The heading is the gospel age, the the covenant of grace age. And that is from the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden till the return of Christ, second coming. And that return, his return, will be no longer to deal with sin and secure salvation. He's done that. It will be to usher in the consummation of his kingdom and therefore begins, here's the phrase, the glorious age. How many indignities are found in this present one? How many times curses 
overflow and blessings seem elusive. How many times do we look at the world around us and say broken, 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 not as it should be, not as it could be. Please make it stop. Right? There are days where all I hear is evil. All I hear is unspeakable acts we commit against each other. Unbelievable failures. Unbelievable evils. But make no mistake, this doctrine of two ages is thoroughly biblical. Let me highlight three for you. The first comes also from Paul at the end of Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1 verse 21, the Apostle Paul says this. Far above, he's, I'm picking up mid-sentence, so go back and do the context on your own. But far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, here it is, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Do you see how freely Paul just drops that? Guys, guys, temporary, temporary, temporary. There's an age that is coming that is not like this age in so many qualitative ways. In quantitative ones too. When does heaven end? Can you imagine a world without time? 10,000 days are as one day. Consider these from the lips of Jesus himself, Matthew 12. Verse 32, I'm just going to give you the end of the verse. Jesus presents this truth, either in this age or in the age to come. Where do you think Paul got his language? He got it from Jesus. And then one of these is a homework assignment for you. I gave you Paul, I gave you Jesus, you give you Isaiah 65, verses 17 through 25. Here is the vision of Isaiah has of the new heaven and a new earth. This is the place where Old Testament Jews are looking forward to a new and glorious age that would take the place of this present age of sin and misery. Read those verses. Isaiah 65, 17 through 25. And you might be awestruck at the contrast and evaluation of the world we live in now, today, this present evil age, and the one to come. One of the great offers of the gospel is deliverance from, but it is also deliverance to. God is not satisfied to take you out from where you are without also bringing you to be with him. Where is the dwelling place of God to be found? With man. And where is the dwelling place of man to be found? With God. Hear the chorus of the Bible. That God belongs with his people and that his people belong to him. One of the things in the prophets that I cling to most is this deep and profound truth 
that there are people who are not his people, who will be his people. Read Habakkuk. It's a great presentation of it. There are outsiders who are brought to be insiders. Well, every Gentile in all of time and space should be applauding that thought. And every Jew excited that they were chosen first. And not only. The gospel has always been, will always be, for the nations. And there is a glorious grace in hoping for a glorious future. In God's glorious and un. Everlasting, his everlasting, no un, his everlasting glory. In other words, part of what Paul is reminding and promising these churches, God is also reminding and promising us that we have a salvation now and we look ahead to our future salvation, our coming deliverance. In other words, outwardly, we still live here. Yes? How many of you with frail or failing bodies, how many of you with minds that are a step slower than they might have been, how many of you look at your loved ones because of their sin or someone else's, and you see the consequences at war all around us. If you don't think humans are sinful, read a newspaper. Kids, there used to be folded pieces of paper that we would pass around with information on them. I know you need a screen to be alive, but it's not really true. We lived great before there was a screen with info on it. Now we have info overload, right? You turn on the news and there's a talking head and two sidebars and three scrolling things and I can't read all of that that fast, which is what they want, so you keep watching more. I digress. How glorious the truth that we are delivered from a present evil age and made citizens now of a future kingdom. Dual passport. I belong to Jesus here in this world, but I am still a citizen of it. And I have a heavenly passport. I can't wait for its first stamp. Do you understand what I'm saying? Outwardly, we are still here in this present evil age, but inwardly, we are already free of its bondage. So if you don't feel free, don't trust that feeling. Amen. Run to Christ who says, I free you. I deliver you, not just from, but for. To me, to myself, to my Father. We have a salvation that breaks in to right now. And there's no conflict within the Trinity. I said this before a few weeks ago. Herman Bavink, the great Dutch theologian, says it this way. He says, God the Father has reconciled his created but fallen world through the death of his Son and renews it into a kingdom of God. 
by his spirit. Our salvation is a thoroughly Trinitarian effort. Economically, ontologically, we have one God we worship and praise. Get me? But here's the deal. Our salvation is secure. It's secure by the life and death and resurrection of Christ. The one-time, non-repeated event of that moment in human history serves as the basis by which those before and all those after are saved. If, if you're saved, it was because of the merits of Christ, not your performance. And this is the flaw of the Judaizers. This is the flaw of our pride trying to once again return us into the slavery of sin and performance and the miseries that follow. Before the creation of the world, not big enough, before the creation of the cosmos, before the creation of any universe among many universes, many galaxies, many stars, before there was any material, before there was space or time, no space, no matter, no time, time, space, and matter have not been made yet. You were set apart for salvation. Is that sure? It doesn't mean you were born saved. It means that God had a plan to save you. And he cannot plan the ends without planning the means. And so we can celebrate that God, before there was not God, chose you to be his and then worked it out in time and space, never as the author of sin, never violating the will of a person. But here, Paul offered that truth to young Titus in the, the ending of his ministry. Listen to Titus chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. The apostle Paul says this, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who by the way never lies, promised when? Before the age began? Oh, it's plural? So before any age because there's more than one, he had already promised a salvation for you, a deliverance, faith for the elect, knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began you were always going to be his and no obstacle put in his path would overcome 
He is greater than all human performance. That's why the gospel is good. And that's why the Judaizers are messing with the secret sauce. They're changing the recipe of salvation. And in doing so, potentially forfeiting salvation. And it's understanding in the life of the early church, which would lead to the understanding of it in the middle church or the later church or the, the last of the church before Christ returns in the eschaton, the last final eternal age begins. Why is Paul teaching a bunch of Jews the truth of a two-age view. It's because there are Gentiles in the midst. Because the gospel is not just for the Jews. Romans 1, for the Jew first, and then the Gentiles. That's chronological primacy, not eternal primacy. Here's why this matters. It matters because People are trying to add human performance into the unbelievable gift of the deliverance from human performance. Because human performance in and of itself is not only inadequate as if God's picky. Are you going to accuse God of being persnickety? Good luck with that. No. It's because he understands that if it's not pure, it's corroded. It's not just incomplete, it's unable. Our efforts are, with the best of intentions, evil. And with the worst of intentions, still evil. This is the theological witness of the text. It's the start of his letter, but it's also his outline. You want to know what we're going to do and when we're going to do it? Follow this intro and see how it works point by point through the rest of Paul's letter here. But the triumph of the doxology here that he concludes with is that this is to the God's glory. The one God, it's His glory. The Father, the Son, the Spirit, all glorified and worshipped forever and ever. Why do we say forever and ever? Wouldn't forever suffice? No. Because part of that is this age. And part of that is the age to come. It's forever and ever, and sometimes when I get excited, ever and ever. But what a triumphant doxology we have. That praises go to God because all the glory belongs to God. Here's where the Judaizers get it wrong. They teach that freedom comes by returning to the very law of God that shows, one, their inability to obey the demands of God's law, and two, the penalties for that failure. The last thing you want from a holy God is justice. Ask for mercy. 
Brothers and sisters, you do not want to be measured and weighed upon the holy scales of God's justice. Your best performance will always be found wanting. Freedom from this present evil age comes not by our performance, not by our effort, not by our desire. No, 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 brothers and sisters, I have much better news for you. Our freedom from the fall of Adam was conceived solely in the mind of God before all creation had ever begun. And that means that when we worship God, we worship our supreme liberator. Somebody's got to write that song. Glory to our supreme liberator. It sounds like Star Wars, but we'll be singing songs like that forever. Remembering. Remembering that the age to come is greater than the age we're in. Just as light is greater than darkness. Darkness can't understand light. It just retreats. This age will retreat and pass away. Darkness, gone in the presence of light. In other words, Christ gives far more than sin takes away. Christ gives far more than sin can take away. And so all glory goes to God and his grace and his peace and the power of the deliverance of the cross for us is given to us. In other words, even in this graduation season, let us remember, better than remember, let us remember and rejoice that we don't graduate from the gospel. We don't outgrow these mighty truths, we grow into them and Christ is formed in us that we love them all the more. I'll close with this quote from Gehirdas Voss. Voss says this, he says, he's, he's analyzing the problem of the Judaizers and he says this, legalism lacks the supreme sense of worship. It obeys but it does not adore. Don't adore your own performance. Adore the Christ who gave himself for you. Let's do that right now. Oh Jesus, we love you and adore you. Well, that you have done for us the things that we could never do for ourselves. Come and sustain us, come and renew us and transform us. Come and make us live in love more like Jesus. And teach us gratitude and contentment, for we are rarely either grateful nor content. Come, O oh Lord. And teach us more about this age to come and prepare us for the day upon which it arrives. Come, O oh Lord, meet with us that we would be renewed in strength and valor. Not that we might eke and squeeze a little bit more from you, 
but that we would offer all to you. Come, O Lord, and bless your people for the sake of Christ, our Savior, and his possessions are ours because of your goodness and power and wisdom. Bless us, we ask in Jesus' name. And all God's people agree.